Begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, as I mentioned, we are kind of continuing that theme, uh, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, not only individually, but at times even as a church or as individuals within our world. And so today, um, we want to ask that question about um, how do we primarily see ourselves um, either as individuals, as individual Christians within our world, or how do we primarily see our churches in the world around us? And, and I, think, I think that's an important question for us to ask, not only personally, but by extension, even as a congregation. So how, what do we primarily see ourselves as, right? There is uh, a fort, Fort Gibson, uh, this is in New York City. Has anybody ever seen Fort Gibson? Some of you are historians and, uh, and, and uh, enjoy traveling. Uh, this one is in New York City. So Fort Gibson was a, a fort that was built uh, in the 18, early 1800s, primarily to protect the harbor in New York City. Uh, so Fort, you can understand why New York was the landing point, right, for our entire nation. Um, after the Revolutionary War, War of 1812 came around, and we as a nation decided, okay, this port in New York is important enough that, that we need it defended, okay? So they, they built a fort there named Fort Gibson. Uh, those are actually, that's all that remains of the walls of Fort Gibson to this day. Uh, this is a model that someone recreated of it. So it's on an island uh, just outside of the, the mouth of New York City. Um, and you can see kind of on the bottom side there, um, it had huge cannons. They said between 10 to 13 uh, different cannons. And, and that makes a lot of sense if you're trying to defend a port from people coming in from sea, right? Okay. Now, what is the purpose of a fort like Fort Gibson? Someone said protection, right? Um, yeah, and, and basically that, um, maybe a little bit of intimidation, uh, maybe also to project strength, right? But I would say on, on its level, or on the base level, Fort Gibson, the reason we built it was to keep the wrong people out, okay? Can we agree on that? So Fort Gibson was built and it was armed in order to keep the wrong people out. It was the British at that time, right? Okay, yeah, some of you are giggling at the, yeah, we keep the British out, right? So, okay, so that was its purpose. That's what a fort's job, that's what a military institution is meant to do, especially here. Um, its goal was to keep people out. Now we're asking ourselves, how do we primarily see ourselves or our churches within the world in which we live? So there's the first one, Fort Gibson. Um, no one admitted that they had ever seen Fort Gibson uh, or read that plaque. But how about if I tell you that Fort Gibson was here? Does anybody recognize this? Ellis Island, right, okay. So this is Ellis Island, same island, a little bit bigger. They built it up, right? So um, on, on the former Fort Gibson military base, uh, about 1890, we as a nation decided we've got so many people that are coming in, and it's not just to keep the British out, but we've got so many people coming in uh, that we needed to create an intake um, location, and we call that Ellis Island, okay? 
So Ellis Island, maybe some of you have gone there, but um, the numbers on the millions, multiple millions of Americans that can trace their lineage back directly to Ellis Island. Some of you are maybe even thinking of it. You're like, you know that your ancestors' names are on the ship manifest that you find at Ellis Island, okay? So a, a fort, its primary objective is to keep the wrong people out. What is the primary objective of Ellis Island in an immigration port? Let people in, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you a little bit on that. If we're being honest, it's to let the right people in. That's truth, right? Okay, so we're not going down the road of immigration anything, but that's true, isn't it? Every nation uh, has, has immigration laws. So a fort is meant to keep the wrong people out. Immigration ports are meant to let the right people in, okay? So now we're talking about how do we view ourselves in our world or even by extension, our churches in it. So military installation, keep the wrong people out. Immigration intake, Ellis Island, let the right people in. But I've got one more picture for you here. After Ellis Island opened, uh, it didn't take very long, maybe about 15 years, where they realized um, their job was to let the right people in, but that there were people that were coming across that ocean that they could not let in right away that should not, on some level, maybe be let in right away. Can you guess who they couldn't let in? The sick, yeah, specifically the sick. So on Ellis Island, they quickly built a hospital. Ellis Island uh, Immigrant Hospital was the name of it. It operated the entire span uh, as, while Ellis Island operated all the way into the 1950s, I think. Uh, yeah, 1954 Ellis Island went, right? So they quickly realized um, that, that they needed a hospital because people were coming across the ocean and, and, and they were sick, right? Uh, maybe they had disease, uh, maybe they were struggling, maybe just the rigors of coming across the ocean uh, had weakened them and so uh, um, it made no sense to simply ship them into New York City to fend for themselves. So they created a hospital on Ellis Island specifically for immigrants that were sick and needed help and needed healing. Okay. Uh, a fort is meant to keep the wrong people out. An immigration center is meant to allow the right people in. What's a hospital meant to do? Heal. That's it. It's meant to heal, right? Those that are sick, it is there for healing, okay? Ellis Island uh, Hospital, you can actually tour it today. If you go to Ellis Island, um, they do hard hat tours of the Ellis Island Hospital. Um, they say that literally millions of immigrants went through the hospital, um, and, and like any hospital, it wasn't all success, but many were healed, and actually many were able to come into and immigrate into the United States, right? And so we have these three pictures of ourselves, and maybe by extension, our churches within our world. A fort is meant to keep people out, an immigration center is meant to allow the right people in, and a hospital is merely meant to heal. I'm going to argue today that the last one is the picture that is most apt for us as believers in this world and for us as a church as well. Now, some of you might take me a little bit to task and say, well, doesn't the Bible have aspects of those other things in there? It absolutely does, right? There are times when God talks about in the Bible where we have to defend our faith, right? Where we say, where, where we are going to stand for the truth of God and Christ and those kind of things. That's absolutely true. There are aspects and pages in the scripture 
about that, right? And, and certainly there are times when God, says, uh, um, when God says there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. There are things that are good and there are things that are bad. There are things that, are, that will bless you as a person and things that will ultimately hurt you, right? So God has that in the Bible as well. But I think at the heart of it, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian congregation, is that we are able to be a place that brings healing, okay? Our text today, that's exactly what Jesus does, spiritually, literally, physically, to a woman in our gospel text. So that's what we're going to go through. Um, I didn't have enough room on the front of your bulletin for my entire theme that I wanted. I just put healing, dot, dot, dot. This is the rest of the dot, dot, dot. Uh, Healing for all, one person at a time. Okay, so today's going to be a little bit different than how I normally do sermons. Um, I'm not going to kind of have parts in there. Uh, This is going to be our our overarching theme, so you're going to see it at the beginning. Healing for all, one person at a time. Um, And then our text today is so beautiful. Um, It is beautiful, and it's packed, and it's dense, um, but it also lays itself out in such a a wonderful way um, that we're going to simply read through the verses of this text. It's not long, uh, and kind of talk about each section, and then at the end, we'll apply that to ourselves and this theme of healing for all one person at a time. You with me on that? Okay. So if you'd like to follow along, you're more than welcome to. Uh, in your bulletin, you're going to see a little bit different than, uh, than what we normally have. You're going to kind of see, uh, I broke out all of the verses. So as we kind of walk through it, you can make notes to yourself. If you'd like, you don't have to. You can just stare at me. Uh, that's fine as well. Um, but we're going to walk through that text Um, comment on it a little bit as we go, um, and then at the end we'll we'll apply that and see kind of how that uh, is impactful for us um, personally and even for us as a congregation, okay? Okay, so let's jump into it. We're going to start with our very first verse, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the setting and what's taking place in in these Bible verses. So verse 21 says this, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, okay? Um, And that kind of brings our first point there. Um, He's really talking to three different peoples, uh, insiders, outsiders, which makes sense, and then I made up a word called alongsiders, and I'll explain that just a little bit. So um, insiders, um, so this is taking place in Jesus' ministry, uh, uh, largely when his popularity was starting to grow, um, but he, he was in danger of being, in a sense, forcibly made to become a, a, an earthly king, a bread king. So this is after the feeding of the 5,000, which we actually went through in church a few weeks ago. Um, Jesus now is going to go to the outskirts, um, away from Jerusalem. That's probably the biggest key here, um, to the outer banks. And what he's doing here now is he's addressing kind of three different groups of people. And some of them you see named directly in our text, but some of them are there by nature of their absence, okay? So he's uh, talking to insiders because at this point, uh, Jesus' ministry had, had risen in popularity. And so the insiders, we'll have another term, we'll call it Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, teachers of the law. The religious establishment, those that were in a sense on the inside of of Israelite culture, right, had started to take notice of Jesus, had started to say, um, um, we're going to increase our persecution of him because he is, 
he is undercutting our power and what they felt was their grip on grip on, on Israelite life. Okay, so the first is the insiders were generally Pharisees, Sadducees, religious establishment. Uh, outsiders is who we're going to see today, the Canaanite woman. So even the region that he's in. So these would be those that are on the on the fringes, on the outside of of Jewish culture and religion, right? Um, when the Bible talks about Jew and Gentile, uh, Jews were those that were followers of, of the Old Testament in Jerusalem primarily, and Gentiles were everyone else, outsiders, okay? So that's the second one. Um, but the third one that I kind of made up is the alongsiders. Um, that really is Jesus' disciples. So remember, they're traveling with him. So insiders, Pharisees are after him. Outsiders, Canaanite woman, but the alongsiders really are Jesus' disciples. And he's taking this time to, to make course corrections in their heart and in their minds because he knew that these disciples were going to be the leaders of the early Christian church. So when I call them alongsiders, it's because they were tag, tagging along with Jesus, okay? So he's really talking to these three groups. And it's going to be interesting because in our text... There's some language and some responses that Jesus uses where on the outset, we're like, why, wait a minute, did he just say that? Or did he just not say it? Like, so there's some ways that Jesus responds which make far more sense if you understand that he's really addressing three different groups here. So insiders, alongsiders, and outsiders, okay? Now, where's he at? region of Tyre and Sidon. Here's a map for those of you that are spatial like me. I like these things. Uh, you see Sea of Galilee down on the bottom. So feeding the 5,000, most of his disciples all worked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. If you keep going south, you'll run into Jerusalem. Um, so we're in the north end of Israel. Um, and then if you look on the upper left, uh, um, left-hand side, you'll see Tyre and Sidon. So it doesn't say exactly he was in those cities, but in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And the reason that this matters is because um, this was a non-Jewish area, right? Filled with Gentiles. And Jews at that time would have said it's filled with people that are on the outside. That, that maybe believe a little bit but aren't true Jews. Maybe they're mixed blood. Uh, so there were ethnic prejudices that went into this. Like, but th this was the fringes, right? So Jesus had gone purposefully into the fringes, okay? Um, which brings us to that next point. Um, unique and for all. So it wasn't by accident that Jesus traveled to Tyre and Sidon. It was purposeful. Okay? Um, this was not on his way to Sea of Galilee. This wasn't on his way to Jerusalem. He purposefully went to Tyre and Sidon. Okay? Um, the importance for us in that is that we see Jesus do that regularly throughout pages of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from Jerusalem, but he doesn't shy away from Tyre and Sidon either. And in fact, there's an intentionality there where he travels and who he talks to. Okay? So we see that in our text as well. Okay. Next couple verses here, verses, uh, verse 22. It says, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Okay, first point there. Uh, she was desperate, cruelly demon-possessed. The Greek word here is kakos. Um, it wasn't just she's got sniffles. She was cruelly demon-possessed. 
This was spiritual, this was physical, this was emotional, this would have been uh, um, um, communal, right? Um, her, because all of her family and her friends would have said, you know, what is going on with your daughter? So when, when our text says that, that she was suffering terribly, it was cruel, right? Her daughter was in pain physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally from these demons. I don't know exactly, um, um, like, nice demon possession. I don't know what that is. But when our text says that this was not the nice kind, you take notice, okay? So she was sick. She was desperate. She needed healing for her daughter. She knew nowhere else to turn, okay? Suffering terribly. Second point, she says, Lord, son of David. So the Lord that has power. So how she addresses Jesus in this text matters, okay? So this isn't just Jesus of Nazareth, right? Remember, Nazareth was in the north. This wasn't just Jesus, son of Joseph, the carpenter. This was, she addresses Jesus and says, Lord, son of David. So she uses the Greek word Kyrie, son of David. She stacks terms here. Kyrie is the Greek word for the Old Testament word Yahweh, which means Lord the I am. Okay? And then she stacks it up with son of David. So now remember, Canaanite woman, not necessarily Jewish, maybe, maybe not, knew of Jewish religion and the Old Testament. And what does she do? She stacks up her terms with Jesus. And she says, I'm looking at you for help and for healing. And with no flinching and no hesitation, I am calling you Lord, the great I am. Not just a carpenter's son, not just a wise prophet, not just another rabbi that could do some fancy miracles or things like that, but you are nothing less than the great I am, the God of the Old Testament. So she's making that connection. And then if, if maybe just to drive it home to Jesus about how desperate she was and her understanding of who he was, she stacks it with son of David. So she says, I know where you come from. I know the line you come from. And I know that God promised to send a savior from the line of David and you are him. Okay? So she said to Jesus, you are the Lord that has power. She is addressing him in that way. Okay. Continue with our next few verses here, 23 through 25. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came before and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Okay, so there's kind of a lot going on in this section, right? Uh, the very first thing is, so she addresses him as Lord and son of David, right? And Jesus did not answer this seems striking? Probably should, right? We're like, uh, did he not hear? No, he clearly heard her. He did not answer. So now, this is a point where we remember the three groups that he is, he's, he is, he is addressing and he is trying to teach. Um, and teachers know this. Um, sometimes silence can test and reveal. I'm making some of you nervous already with my silence. Right? But teachers can do that. Um, when kids are rowdy at school, if a teacher just goes silent, 
it's amazing how the silence kind of spreads and, and kids perk up and they listen and their eyes are on their teacher, right? Jesus is doing this purposefully. He's silent, right? Now, whose eyes is he trying to get to perk up and focus on him? And this is where it's important. Um, Remember, the Canaanite woman had just called him Lord, the great I am, the son of David. Where do you think her heart was in relation to Jesus? Oh, like dead on. Like dead on. She knew exactly who he was. So who is he addressing by the silence here? Well, it's actually not her at this moment. Yeah, I think it's primarily his disciples. I think it's primarily his disciples, right? Um, is he testing them? Is he testing her? Is he, is he just allowing to see how this is going to play out? Who knows, right? But on some level, the disciples fail the test and the Canaanite woman passes it, okay? So silence can test and reveal. Um, <clears throat> disciples come to Jesus and say, send her away, okay? So in essence, the disciples' message to Jesus about this woman was, be done with her. Enough. Now, remember the sequence physically of what was happening here. Um, she started out behind Jesus. So she's, she's clamoring after him, right? Yelling, screaming, making a commotion, right? So she's behind him, though, at that point, yelling, uh, Lord, son of David, heal me, right? Chasing out after him. Jesus is silent. It's not as though he didn't hear her back there, right? And what do the disciples do? Enough. Jesus, be done with her. Send her away, right? Uh, we don't want to hear her screaming. We want nothing to do with her. Send her away, okay? So silence revealed a little bit the heart of the disciples at this time, okay? He said, be done with her. We don't want to hear this wailing. We don't want to hear this, this screeching for help. We don't want to hear this desperation. Be done with her, Jesus. We've got more important things to do, right? You've got miracles to do. You've become a popular. We're on the rise. We don't have time for this desperation that's clamoring behind you. Okay? So the disciples say, be done with her. Now, in contrast to the disciples saying, be done, what does the woman do? She bows down. Okay? So the disciples say, be done. The woman, who Jesus was silent in front of, <laughs> bows down. And now you can see how this switched. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Came and knelt before him. The word there is actually the same word for um, to prostrate yourself on the ground. Okay? So knelt is a little, maybe even possibly a little bit of a, uh, a softer English word that we use. Right? Could she have been kneeling? For sure. But most of the time when we talk about prostrating ourselves on the ground, it's, it's full-blown on the ground. And, and now you notice where she is. She isn't behind him anymore. What has she done? She ran in front of him, and she laid down in front of him. She bowed down to Jesus as her Lord and Savior. So in this test, in this silence, the disciples say, be done with her. I've got no time for this. What does the woman do? She doesn't give up, doesn't get angry, doesn't do any of those things. She bows down in front of Jesus, okay? What does that reveal about her? Listen to her words. Lord, help me, she said. So now who is she appealing to again? The Lord who helps. First time she said it is the Lord who has power. Second time she says it, you are the Lord who helps. I know that that is the type of Lord and God and I am that you are. You are a God that helps and that heals. And I'm willing to lay down in front of you and bet my life and the life of my daughter on it. 
The disciples weren't willing to do that. But she was. Because she knew this was the Lord who helps. Okay? Okay, continue on. Verse 26, 27. Jesus replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, again, we think, what in the world, Jesus? Like, a little bit, like, being a little bit cruel. I mean, if we're just cutting right to it, he has just called her a dog. Okay? It is, right? Um, um, But what does she say? She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs, crumbs that sustain. Okay? So what she is saying is, I can live off of the crumbs from the table of the great I am. I can live off of the crumbs of the God who is going to send a Savior to wash sins clean. I can live off of the crumbs of a God of the Old Testament. Right? That's essentially what she was saying. Now, again, audience. Right? Jesus is talking to her, but he knows disciples are listening. The disciples that were already pretty busy and wanted to move on. Right? Um, They're listening. Remember what had just happened uh, not too long before this. Jesus had fed estimate 15, 20,000 peoples on a, on a hillside. And what did the disciples do at the end of that feeding? Picked up all the crumbs and 12 basketfuls of them. You have to imagine that when the disciples said to be done with this woman, and this woman does not run away, but in fact lays down in front of Christ, and now he calls her a dog, and she says, I can live off your crumbs. You have to imagine the disciples were sitting there going, okay, right? The great I am, the God that just fed 15,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, so much so that there were crumbs all over the field, that is the God that she has bowed in front of, and that's the God and Savior that we didn't see clearly. You can almost have this mental picture of of the Canaanite woman going through that field, eating those crumbs and eating to her fill, right? Spiritually speaking, in this entire account, the strongest faith we see is the faith of the Canaanite woman. And the disciples were receiving an intimate education in that, okay? Crumbs that sustain. She says, if you're the God that created the entire universe... I can, I can eat quite well from the crumbs from your table, right? Okay? Okay. And she appeals to him one last time. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs. So once again, so three times in this text, she calls him Lord, right? Uh, um, the great I am, the Lord that keeps promises. First time, said, you are the Lord that has power. Second time, you are the Lord that heals Third time, you are the Lord that keeps promises. It doesn't break promises. And she appeals to him on that level, right? It is a beautiful confession of faith of who Christ truly was. Right? Which leads us to the very final verse called the climax of this entire text. Let's read it. Verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Right? It's remarkable, isn't it? 
the confession of her faith, the path she took, and Jesus recognizes it, right? He says, you have great faith to her, right? Um, um, a, maybe a little bit better translation that our English sometimes smooths that out a little bit. It reads better, woman, you have great faith. Um, but specifically the Greek, it's, it's o gune, so it, it's, it's o woman, great of you, faith. So he stacks things on the front end, right? He says, oh woman, great of you, faith. Right? He's saying, all of this that's happened is on account of your great faith that three times bowed before the great I am and understands exactly why I am here and what I am here to do. Right? If we could all be so blessed to have our Lord and Savior make a statement about us, similar to that. You can call me a dog <laughs> if you want. If my Lord and Savior says, you have great faith, right? This is where this woman came to, right? And ultimately, healing, right? Not just spiritually, but also emotionally, physically, socially, everything, right? It's a beautiful story true story. And it's a lesson, I think, to insiders, to longsiders, and outsiders, and each and every one of us. Back to our theme. Healing for all, one person at a time. What's Jesus' point of this text? Christ is a savior, and his forgiveness is meant for it does not matter if you're an insider, an outsider, or an alongsider, or any other word you want to make up, that Christ's healing and forgiveness of sins is meant for all. No matter what our pedigree is, no matter what we've done, no matter whether we took time out of our day to come to church on a Sunday morning and we think we're racking up good things in God's column, um, it makes no difference. Christ's healing is meant for all. Insiders, outsiders, alongsiders, no matter where we come from, Christ's healing message is for all. That's a message we need to hear and to hold on to, isn't it? Um, because I think there are times where maybe we think Christ's message either needs to be defended in a way by us or we need to keep the wrong people out. But at the end of the day, we as believers and we as a church are nothing less than a hospital dealing out healing that we find in no other place than the great I am in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Forgiveness, freely given, overwhelmingly given, undeserved love in, in Christ, right? So, healing for all, right? Apostle Paul knew that, actually, in our opening text. From Ephesians, Paul says this, <clears throat> Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, okay? So healing for all, and we do that one person at a time. Uh, we cannot take in everything and all the ills and all the woes of this world, but you do have the opportunity to share the healing that comes from no other place than the great I am and Christ, one person at a time. I've used this illustration recently. Um, the spread of the gospel is less like 
the sun kind of shining down and more like a torch being passed person to person or a flashlight person to person in a sin-darkened world. That's the privilege we have as believers to share Christ with our world. The same Christ that heals, that helps, right, and that offers free forgiveness in Jesus. This is one of the walls of the hospital uh, on Ellis Island, the immigrant, immigrant hospital on Ellis Island. Um, it is in disrepair, uh, but there was an artist that came in to try to kind of highlight uh, empty buildings sometimes can be a little lifeless, so he put pictures on the walls of immigrants to give a sense of that this place actually did what it was asked to do, which was heal people, right? He put that on those walls. A man named Reuben Barrett um, went through that hospital when he was four years old. At the time that he wrote this quote, he was the last living person that anyone knew of that had actually gone through that hospital at Ellis Island. They brought him back and he said this, the nurses and the aides taught me English. When I left there after six weeks, I spoke English fluently, he said. I didn't know every word, but I spoke without an accent. I don't recall any of the treatments they gave me. I don't recall if they hurt me or not, but I do recall being happy and enjoying myself in this hospital. I'm really glad I came back. His experience was healing, right? And even as a kid, he didn't know everything that was going on, all the pain and suffering, but he knew that these people were there to take care of him and that this was a place that was safe and that would do their best to bring him healing and hope. That's our joy to be able to do as believers as well. This is one last picture from inside Yellis Island Hospital. You can maybe see what's in the reflection on the mirror, right? If we do nothing less as believers and as a congregation than to point people to the freedom they have in Christ, that will, be, that will have been a life worth living, right? If we do nothing more than to bring the healing of Christ to people that are broken and lost and in the darkness, we will have done exactly what God and what Christ has put us on this earth to do. I pray the Lord helps you do that individually in your lives, and I pray that he helps us collectively as a congregation do that very same thing. Simply point people to Christ and the healing we have in him. Amen.